A quick note before the episode begins. This conversation involves graphic discussions related to abortion and the abortion industry. Please consider turning off the episode if children are present and continue listening with caution. Abortion is not pro-woman. Abortion hurts women. Abortion hurts family. Abortion hurts pre-born children who many of them are little women. They are females. They will grow up to be women. And you can't say that you are pro-woman if you are advocating for the death of females, if you're advocating for the death of preborn baby girls. How is that pro-woman? Abortion would have killed me, taken my life. I would have been dismembered. I would have been thrown away into a trash can. I wouldn't have been able to be the woman that I am and to live out my life. It's absolutely hypocritical of pro-abortion advocates to say that we are the ones that are pro-woman. No, we in the pro-life movement are pro-women from the womb to the tomb. We are pro-women from the moment of conception all the way to natural death. We are fighting for them in the womb and outside of the womb. We want them to live, to thrive, to prosper, and to be whole. Pro-life advocates come from all walks of life. Some are motivated by their faith. Some by their fidelity to the law, to the Constitution, to basic biology. Some have seen abortion up close. Abortionists who had a change of heart, who saw the reality of what they were doing and could no longer deny it. But there's one group of people for whom abortion is an even more intimate and personal issue than it is for all those other groups. That would be the people who were nearly killed by abortion themselves. People such as Christina Bennett. Right now, I would strongly recommend you go to hello.com slash choose life, because today's world is a scary one. Too many people don't seem to care about the truth. And I would suggest that that's all rooted in people becoming less or really just anti-religious. That's why it's more important than ever to keep our relationship with God strong. Hallow is the number one Christian prayer app in the United States. It's like Calm or Headspace but rooted in Catholic faith. It is the perfect resource to deepen your relationship with God and find peace through audio-guided prayer and meditation. Several of Hallow's meditations encourage you to choose life and to pray for others to choose life, such as their Litany for Life with Lila Rose. Hallow is free to download. It will help you find peace and calm throughout your day. So do it. Do it right now. Download the app for free at hallow.com slash choose life. That is hello.com slash choose life. Take a listen to Christina Bennett. My name is Christina Bennett, and I am a pro-life advocate. I've been a pro-life advocate for close to 20 years now. It's not something that I ever imagined that I would do, but my life turned out to be different than I thought it would be. When I was going to college in Connecticut, I was going to school and uncertain of what I was going to do with my future, 
But I was also going to church. I'm a person of faith. And I was at church one day and someone approached me and they told me that God wanted me to know something remarkable happened around the time of my birth, which was a very interesting thing for someone to say. And I ended up asking my mom if anything remarkable had happened around the time of my birth. And she told me that she'd met an angel before I was born. Now, my mom had never said anything like that before, and I thought that was very strange, but she also said, I don't wanna talk about it. So I let it go, and I waited a couple months, and then I asked her again, mom, what do you mean that you met an angel before I was born? Well, she was very hesitant and said, I can't tell you because you would hate me. And so, of course, now I was more curious to find out what she meant. And I said, mom, please tell me I would never hate you. And she opened up and she told me that before I was born, when she got pregnant, she was not married. My dad was emotionally abusive. It was a toxic kind of relationship. And she ended up being pressured by my father to have an abortion. And she went to a church at the time. And so she actually went to her mentor to tell her that she was pregnant. But her mentor said, if you come back to this church, I'll be the first person to put my foot in the door and not let you in because she didn't want her to be in church and to be pregnant out of wedlock. So my mother ended up going to Mount Sinai Hospital in Hartford, Connecticut, and she ended up going to pay for an abortion. They put her in a white hospital robe and she met with a counselor and the counselor told her, this is the best decision for you to make. She told her, just go wait for the doctor to call your name. And between the counselor's office and the waiting room, she paused in the hallway for a moment to gently cry and to collect herself before she went in to get the abortion. And there she met this African-American elderly janitor. She saw my mom crying and she walked right up to her and she looked her in the eyes and said, do you wanna have this baby? My mother said, yes. And she said, God will give you the strength to have your baby. Shoulder to go put her clothes on and leave. And my mom put her head down for what she says was probably 30 seconds. She put her head back up and the woman was gone. And when she went into the waiting room, the doctor called her name. She went to the doctor's office and he hadn't cleaned up the blood from the last abortion. It was on the floor. And she was disgusted and said, I've changed my mind. I want to keep my baby. And he said, no. He said, you've already paid for this. And she said, no, I've changed my mind. I want to keep my baby. And he said, you're just nervous. You can get through this. And again, she told him that she wanted to keep me. And he yelled at her and said, don't leave this room. And she ran out. And she had no desire to ever tell me that story. She married my father. And it lasted for about a year. But they had a lot of issues in their relationship. And so they divorced after a year. And she had no intention of ever telling me. But when I approached her and asked her if anything remarkable had happened around the time of my birth, she decided that it was time to tell me that she had scheduled to abort me but that God had sent this janitor and that janitor had helped save my life. And at that point in my early 20s, I didn't really know what to do with that story because I grew up in a family where I'd never heard abortion talked about. I grew up in Connecticut and it's a very pro-choice state. We don't even have parental notification laws. So teenagers in my high school could get an abortion without even telling their parents. And I'd never heard abortion talked about in any church. I had never heard abortion talked about at home. None of my family members were pro-life or voted pro-life. I didn't have any frame of reference for the pro-life movement. I couldn't have named one person in the movement. But when I found out that I'd almost died, that I was scheduled to be aborted and my mom walked out, I felt that God spoke to my heart and said, Christina, I wanted you. 
and then asked me the question, how do you think I feel about the others? And I really did not know who the others were because I had no understanding of the history of abortion, how it's impacted the black community, how many of us have died. I had no understanding, but I decided that I would find out. And I set myself to research and talk to women and listen to their stories. And I eventually decided that I would join the pro-life movement and I would fight for the ending of abortion for the rest of my life. And that was 20 years ago and I've never stopped and I will not stop. Do you think most uh, young women are pressured by doctors in organizations like Planned Parenthood like your mother was? I absolutely believe that many women are coerced into abortion and pressured. And that pressure and coercion can come in many forms. It can be a boyfriend who tells them, if you don't have this abortion, I don't want to be in a relationship with you anymore. It can be a professor who lets them know that they might not really be able to finish all of their work or their or their course load if they get pregnant. It can be a parent that says, there's no room for you and a child. So if you have this baby, you have to move out. You can't live here anymore. Or it can just be society and the pressures that they have taken on and the lies that they've believed, which is, you can't have a baby and be successful. You need to have an abortion. This is the way for liberation. This is the way for progress. And of course, as well, the abortion doctors. Many times women feel pressure when they go to Planned Parenthood or an abortion clinic, and it is the agenda or the motive of the doctor to do their business, and their business is performing abortions. And so I worked at a pregnancy resource center for four years, and I heard a lot of stories from women, women who told me that they were told that they could see the ultrasound before they had an abortion and then they weren't able to see the ultrasound, women who were not told the truth about the possible risks from having an abortion, emotional and physical, women who were lied to, so many horrible, tragic stories, and women who've also had botched abortions and been left infertile and left with baby parts inside of them and who were never able to get justice. Who is Dr. Bernard Nathanson and what, how does he play into this story? Dr. Bernard Nathanson was an OBGYN from New York City who in the 1960s, he founded an organization called NARAL, the National Association for the Appeal of Abortion Laws, which is now considered to be NARAL Pro-Choice America. He truly believed that women had to have abortion access as a way to achieve liberation and freedom. And he personally was responsible for over 60,000 abortions, even including his own child, who he said at the time when he performed the abortion only felt pride over his skill in being able to do so. Now, later in life, he had a change of heart, and this was due in part to ultrasound technology, because when he was advocating for abortion rights, this was prior to the breakthrough of ultrasound technology. And when that became more normal and used in medicine, he began to really understand what was happening in the womb, the fetal development of the child, and how they responded to abortion. And that was a huge life-changing thing for him. It caused him to produce a film called The Silent Scream, which shows a preborn child being aborted and how they actually open up their mouth and produce a silent scream when the instruments are coming towards them. And that film was used all across the country, even by President Ronald Reagan, who promoted the film as a way to speak out against the evil of abortion. What were some of the lies that Bernard Nathanson and other pro-abortion advocates used at that time? 
There were four main lies that Dr. Bernard Nathanson used during the 1960s to promote abortion. One of them was the idea that abortion was merely just a medical procedure and nothing more than that, that it had nothing to do with morality or ethics, but it was just a medical procedure that women needed to have like any other medical procedure. Another lie was that abortion was a way to alleviate poverty. For those women who were impoverished and vulnerable, abortion was a way to help them to alleviate their ills of poverty. Another lie was that if abortion was not legalized, women would continue to die by the tens of thousands. Unfortunately, Dr. Bernard Nathanson, he greatly exaggerated the amount of women who were dying from abortions, and he sold that lie to the American public. He later in life said that that was a lie, but at the time, people all across America believed it, and so he continued to say that if you do not legalize abortion, there are going to be thousands and thousands of women every year who are dying in back alley abortions, and therefore you need to legalize abortion because they're gonna have it anyway, but at least now they can have it safely. And another lie, was the idea that abortion, there's nothing wrong with it, and those who opposed it were only doing so because of religious reasons. The only reason that someone would oppose abortion is because they have some sort of religious conviction and their faith is telling them to oppose it, and that's the only reason that it's a religious reason, and therefore we should reject Catholics and Protestants who are opposing it on those grounds. Can you respond to the first lie that abortion is a medical issue and not a moral one? Pro-choice advocates like to say that abortion is merely just a medical issue. In fact, I remember once reading on a Planned Parenthood website for teenagers that they said that abortion was like getting a tooth removed or getting a kidney taken out. And this couldn't be further from the truth. This is a moral issue. This is an ethical issue. We think about morality and what that is. That's basically just the standards that we've come to agree upon as a society as to what is right and what is wrong, what is ethical and what is just and what is not. And even though something may be a medical procedure because it involves medical medical professionals, it doesn't mean that it's moral. One example of that would be sterilization, particularly forced sterilization. America has a dark history of forced sterilization when it comes to black women and women of color. Planned Parenthood and Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of Planned Parenthood, she actually supported forced sterilization. You could argue, someone could argue that this was a medical procedure and merely a medical procedure, but I think all of us can recognize that this is also something that was morally wrong, ethically wrong, unjust. And that's just one example. Nazi Germany could be another example where medical procedures were done on people in camps, but those were not just medical procedures. Those were injustices that were done against a people group because they were being discriminated against. And so, yes, there are medical professionals involved with terminating the lives of preborn children, but it's still something that is morally wrong. What about lie number two that, you know, oh, if abortion was illegal, thousands of women a year would, would die from back alley abortions or coat hanger abortions or improper dosages of taking chemicals for chemical abortions? How do you respond to that? 
One thing it's important for people to know is that Dr. Bernard Nathanson, when he was advocating for abortion rights in the 1960s through NARAL, that he grossly exaggerated the amount of people who were dying from illegal abortions. And he did this on purpose. He grossly exaggerated those numbers so that he could convince the American people that he had to, we had to have abortion rights. So first of all, it's important to know that those numbers were never correct. In addition to that, the advancement of medicine and technology and things like penicillin, that also has lowered the amount of deaths from illegal abortions and legal abortions as well. When people say if you restrict abortion rights, you're going to see thousands of women that are dying in back alley abortions, I think it would be good to take a look at what is happening right now. Even take a look at the state of Texas. The state of Texas has passed heartbeat bill legislation that restricts abortion after six weeks. There are so many abortion advocates that are upset about that, and they are paying very close attention to what's happening in Texas. But yet, we've not heard one story of a woman coming out of Texas who's died from an illegal abortion. And trust me, if there was a story, we would have heard it. It would be front page news, but we're not hearing those things. And we have to ask ourselves the question as to why, perhaps, this is a lie. And perhaps it's something that's exaggerated so that people are afraid to protect the preborn child. Beyond kind of anecdotal examples, uh, are there any more concrete proofs that Planned Parenthood's numbers are just totally fabricated? Apart from even those arguments, even the Washington Post did an article where they fact-checked Planned Parenthood's claims and they found that they were absolutely false. Can you respond to lie number three, that the pro-life movement is just a bunch of religious zealots who want to force their beliefs on yeah. the nation? The pro-life movement does have a large amount of people who are people of faith. Other movements in the past have had that as well, and there's nothing wrong with that. Look at the civil rights movement. Look at Dr. Martin Luther King. He was a minister. Is there ever a question as to why there are so many Baptists and Protestants and people of color who have faith and were driving the civil rights movement? Was there ever a question of why they got together in churches and sang hymns as well as marching out on the streets for justice? Was this ever something that was brought up as an accusation against them? No, it's just part of their belief system. People of faith in the civil rights movement, they combined their beliefs from the Bible along with their beliefs about morality and their value system, and that caused them to fight for the dignity of human beings. That's the same case with the abolitionists. If you look at the abolitionist movement in America, those that were fighting slavery, a lot of them were Quakers. A lot of them were people of faith. They weren't the only ones, but a lot of them used their faith as a motivation for them to fight for the dignity of the human person. And that is the same thing happening in the pro-life movement. For those that are Catholics, are Protestants, are Muslims, are Jews, many of us look at our faith as a motivation for us to fight for the dignity and worth and value of the preborn person. But there are other people who are atheists, secular people, who they look at their own morals and their own value system, and that causes them to fight for the dignity of the preborn person. Right. You know, I think one of the, the, the kind of story that pro-abortion advocates weave is, you know, oh, we're going to end up in a handmaid's tale, you know, right, right. Where, where women are just like slaves to, to the men in society and, you know, women don't have autonomy over their own bodies. 
You know, is that is that a fair critique? And, and does that even relate to the fact that, yeah, a lot of the reason is right. a religious one, but are we, this fighting for life equate to like theocracy where, you know, women have no rights, I guess. I would say that if you look at the laws in America, you'll notice that there are times where morality, you know, American laws and faith, they overlap or they're interconnected. So the laws that we have about stealing, the laws that we have about murder, those are also things that you can find in the Bible, biblical principles that say, thou shall not steal or you shall not murder. Now, you don't have to be religious to understand that stealing hurts someone. You don't have to be religious or a person of faith to understand that committing murder hurts someone. You might not say it's a sin against that person, but you would say that that's something that's hurtful and that you don't want that in a just society. And so therefore, fighting abortion is one other example where, yes, you can find biblical reasons to be against it, but also you can find reasons to not want something that is ending the life of a human being to be part of a just society, to not want that to be something that is part of the moral fabric of our nation because it hurts the preborn child, but it also hurts women and men and all of us, I would argue. And so therefore, you don't have to be religious to recognize that that is a moral wrong. What about lie number four, that feticide is a way of fighting poverty and other social issues? As a woman of color, as someone who was rescued minutes before being aborted, as someone who grew up with a single mom and did struggle through poverty, it is so offensive to me when people argue that we need abortion rights because if we don't have them, children are going to be poor or children are going to grow up and be put into the foster care system. They're still human beings, regardless of how much money they have, regardless of the careers that they have, regardless of the circumstances that they may face, they're still human beings. And none of us actually know the potential that a child has and who they will become. In fact, we celebrate those who overcome. We celebrate those who were born with single mothers, were born into poverty, and then they got their doctorate, or they became a lawyer, or they went to the White House, or they got involved in politics. We love to look at their backstory and say, isn't it amazing? They started here, and then they were able to advance in society. Now, we acknowledge that and celebrate that, but at the same time, when we talk about abortion, we're basically saying those people shouldn't exist. So which is it? Should they not exist? Or do we look at them as an example of those who have overcome? It's offensive to think that we would advocate for the death of those that are poor when really women and families need support and resources not an offer to terminate their children. I think that's a good segue into the discussion of whether the poor and minority communities are targeted by, you know, the abortion lobby and abortion organizations like Planned Parenthood. Um, so I guess, you know, to what extent is that happening? In the 1930s, Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of Planned Parenthood, she had something called the Negro Project. 
She hired black ministers to promote birth control outside of tent revivals or different places that black people would gather. And she wrote in a letter that she didn't want word to get out that she wanted to exterminate the Negro population. Now, some people argue that that's not what she meant by that. They say that, oh, she just realized that black people had certain fears during that time period and they wouldn't trust maybe white people who were offering them birth control and they might think that they were trying to exterminate their population. But my question is this, what are you doing if you have to wonder if people are going to think that you're trying to exterminate a population. I've never done anything in my entire life that I would have to think, hmm, I wonder if people are going to think that I'm trying to exterminate a people group by what I'm doing. So that causes you to question really her actions. But in addition to that, the Negro Project, and that's what she had. She had a one specific project focused on black Americans. Unfortunately, those evil roots of eugenics, it really has borne fruit over hundreds of years where you see that African-American women, we are three times more likely to abort than other races. And we have abortion as the number one cause of death in our community. And it's truly devastating. Just recently, Planned Parenthood in New York, they removed Margaret Sanger's name off of their abortion clinic. And because they wanna move away from her, because they understand that she believed in supported eugenics philosophy, and that's evil. But even though they remove the name of her from their building, they can't remove what she's done and what's happening now. I'd like to give an example from my home state of Connecticut of what's happening right now in the abortion industry. In Connecticut, over 70% of the abortions are with women who are on Medicaid. So 70% of the abortions that are paid for in Connecticut are paid for by taxpayer dollars. So the women who are having 70% of the abortions are low-income women who are depending on the state for resources and aid. But tragically, the state is offering them abortion. They're not offering them adequate housing. There is a maternity home that closed down in Hartford, Connecticut because the state wasn't giving it enough funding. So women are in need of housing, they're in need of prenatal care, they're in need of resources, but the state is offering them abortion. In addition to that, the progressives and feminists and pro-abortion liberals in our state are punishing and trying to harass the pregnancy resource centers the very centers that are helping pregnant women and supporting them, they've accused them of false advertising. They've accused them of being fake clinics. NARAL, the abortion rights organization that Dr. Bernard Nathanson started, they are active in Connecticut harassing these centers. They even passed legislation against them last year. But many of these pro-choice progressives who are fighting the pregnancy centers on behalf of black women, and this is what they say, we're supporting black women, we're fighting for black women and their abortion rights, they've never stepped foot in the pregnancy centers. They've never even gone to see how many black women and women of color are being served and being helped. And so it's very shallow, it's very hypocritical, and they are supposedly fighting for black women, but those are the same women that are not on the streets fighting for abortion rights that wanna make sure that they can provide for their children and they can have social services and support, but they're not on the streets advocating for abortion rights, but white progressives are doing it for them, but really I think they're doing it for themselves in the name of them. Why would progressive politicians and activists 
uh, specifically white activists and progressives, why would they be pushing for more abortion access for, for minority communities and black women? White progressives, especially white female progressives, abortion is an idol to them. It is something that is part of their identity. And in Connecticut recently, a black pro-life female Democrat got elected and a white progressive said of her, because she's pro-life, she should have never been elected because there needs to be a litmus test for those who are elected. And the litmus test has to be whether you support abortion or not. Even though this black pro-life Democrat is active in the black community, helping women, helping families, and agrees with her progressive allies on issues like social justice for the black community and things like that. None of that mattered to them because they're so focused on the fact that she's pro-life. And that's just an example of how much they prioritize abortion access above everything else. And therefore, they think of themselves as some sort of saviors for the Black community. Oh, these poor Black women, they're having so many children. They really need our help. They need us to fight for them on behalf of abortion. And it's a lie. Really, Black women in my state of Connecticut and all across the country, they're looking for resources. They're looking for support. They're often having abortion because they're coerced or because they don't have financial resources and help but they offer them abortion. It's really patronizing and it's really evil. It reminds me almost of the white savior complex. Absolutely. It's definitely a white savior complex. I know what's best for you, but when it comes to their own family, maybe it's a different story. But when it comes to the poor black woman on the street, they think, oh, abortion is the best thing for her. She needs abortion. She needs abortion. Well, why does she need abortion? Because of what? Because she's gonna have too many kids? In your opinion, is that why she needs abortion? Because those kids might be on social services, because they might be on welfare. I mean, it goes back to the eugenics philosophy that Margaret Sanger had when she started Planned Parenthood. It was the same idea. She worked with the elites to convince them that these poor black people, they really need our help. They're having too many children. We need to offer them birth control and then later abortion. Now they've just reimagined themselves as being some sort of helpers and you know alleviating the ills and the issues of the black community by offering abortion. But they never acknowledged the black women who've been hurt by abortion and they never acknowledged the black women like Tanya Reeves, like Lakeisha Wilson, like Crete Irwin, who've actually died at the hands of the abortion industry. No, they never wanna talk about their stories or the many women who we don't even know their names, but they've had botched abortions there's no room to mention them as well. It's only advocating for abortion as a means of liberation and aid to the black community. And it's a lie. Roe's overturning was an historic victory, but abortion is still legal in many states. And the only way we'll truly see lasting cultural change is by changing the hearts and minds of pro-abortion people. Live Action is the most prominent pro-life online group in America, reaching millions of young men and women with the truth about the killing of preborn children. No other organization reaches as many people online as Live Action. Its content has proven to transform opinions from pro-abortion to pro-life. Most pro-choice people don't know what abortion actually entails. When they see the brutality it inflicts on preborn children, they rethink their stance. 
You can save the lives of countless children by making a donation today at liveaction.org slash dailywire. That's liveaction.org slash dailywire. Live Action is a nonprofit organization that I support. They've done tremendous work in building a culture of life. Please make a donation today to help them reach young people with the truth so we can wipe out abortion in this country once and for all. Donate today at liveaction.org slash dailywire. That's liveaction.org slash dailywire. And thanks for your support. I think it's worth even, you know, specifying this for audiences. Is Planned Parenthood and our abortion advocates actively saying people of color, minority communities, uh, they need more access to abortion? Absolutely. I've testified multiple times before Congress on abortion-related bills. And in these meetings, I have heard pro-choice advocates, doctors, abortion doctors, and activists from Planned Parenthood and other organizations say that we need abortion access because of black and brown women, because women of color need to have abortion access. This is the number one thing that I have heard people say when it comes to fighting for abortion access, the need, supposed need, for women of color to have abortion rights. Why is the discussion of abortion and its history and its kind of philosophical, you know, background, specifically kind of, you know, the origins of Planned Parenthood and a lot of the advocates of abortion um, early on, why is that discussion of abortion's history maybe more important now than ever? We're in a time in America where we talk a lot about racism and some people don't like how much it's talked about, but that's where we're at. And people are looking at different areas and societies and institutions and asking themselves how they can be better towards people of color and how they can be more just. But yet we have Planned Parenthood, who we are funding through our taxpayer dollars, who are getting millions and millions of dollars every year from the government. And this is an organization rooted in eugenics, rooted in racism, that every day is preying upon poor women, preying upon women of color, preying upon women who've gotten word that their child might have a disability. How can we not, in a time like this, when we are having these national conversations about race and racism, how can we not examine Planned Parenthood? How can we not look deep into their history and their present and ask ourselves, are they really helping women of color or are they profiting off of their pain? Are they taking advantage of them? They're not a charity. They're a business. And they're making a lot of money and getting a lot of money from our government in order to terminate black and brown children by the millions. Is Planned Parenthood the only culprit or are they the main one or, you know, just give audiences a sense of, you know, why are we talking so much about Planned Parenthood? Planned Parenthood is the nation's largest abortion provider and they are very much a household name 
if a woman is thinking of having an abortion, very often she's going to think of Planned Parenthood. And that's simply because of their marketing. They spend millions of dollars doing marketing. Even Margaret Sanger, when she had the Negro Project in the 1930s and 1940s, she also had things that she wrote, like the Birth Control Review, like the Woman Rebel, No Gods and No Masters, where she was putting out propaganda and she was putting out information to change the opinions of Americans. And that's still happening today with Planned Parenthood. They're the ones that are on the front line saying that abortion is healthcare. They're even saying that abortion is self-care. And they're saying that abortion is needed for women of color. And they are also the ones who are lobbying and sending their lobbyists into capitals all across the country to talk to legislators, to get them to push certain bills and to get them to fight against other bills. And so they are this Goliath, this giant, when it comes to abortion. And so we must talk about them. But aside from them, of course, there's so many other organizations and institutions that have blood on their hands when it comes to abortion. Those that have partnered with Planned Parenthood, those that have covered up their lies, the FDA who has said, okay, abortion pills can be sent out through the mail permanently, even though they know that that is dangerous for women to have abortions in their own home and not see a doctor, but they're in bed with Planned Parenthood, so therefore they let that go. There's responsibility there. There's responsibility for doctors and organizations and the American Medical Association that would look the other way and not truly report on what's happening with botched abortions or would say that post-abortion syndrome or people who have negative effects after abortion, that that's not really a thing or that most women are just going to feel relief after an abortion. And even the church where we have not called out this evil and injustice, even we bear responsibility for that. And so Planned Parenthood is a Goliath, but it's definitely supported by all sorts of different people groups and organizations and institutions that props it up and allows it to have the power that it does. And one of them being our United States government, because we are funding them. What are the objectives of the, of the pro-abortion movement? Abortion on demand without apology. That is the objective of the pro-abortion movement, abortion on demand without apology. They believe that abortion is a right for women to have, and that's something that they should not have to apologize. They shouldn't have to feel bad about it. They should be able to have an abortion at any time during their pregnancy, whether it's six weeks or whether it's 26 weeks or beyond. They should be able to have what Roe v. Wade and Dovey Bolton promises, that abortion all the way up even to the point of birth and no one should question them. Men shouldn't question them, uh, even if they're the fathers of the children. The church shouldn't question them. Other women shouldn't question women who are having abortions. They should have that freedom, that liberation to be able to choose to have an abortion. In addition to that, they are trying to reframe the way that we think about abortion. And so in the years past, even pro-choice politicians would refer to abortion as something that was tragic or something that was sad or unfortunate. Now, they would think of it kind of like a necessary evil. We need to have abortion, but it is something that we want to lessen. Well, now, the pro-choice movement of today, they're moving away from that. They're moving away from safe, legal, and rare to legal. <laughs> 
because they know it's not rare when you have over 60 million abortions. They can't say it's rare anymore. And they're not really that concerned about being safe because if they were, they wouldn't advocate for abortion pills being sent out through the mail. So they're only really interested in it being legal up until the point of birth and fighting for that. And they want people to see it as something good. They actually want people to see it as a, as a good, as a societal good. For audiences who don't know, you know, what is Planned Parenthood? Planned Parenthood is the nation's largest abortion provider. They also provide STD testing and they also provide birth control. There's some things that they say that they provide, but it's not actually true that they've lied about and been caught lying about mammograms or prenatal care and things like that. But not only are they a massive organization in America, but they also reach out globally to many different nations. And they also have a an arm that lobbies and does politics. And so they have a lot of money that they invest into making sure that pro-abortion legislators get elected so they can continue to fight for that organization. So as much as some might say that it is a health organization, I would say that it's very much a political organization as well. You, you mentioned the 60 million abortions since Roe v. Wade. How many lives have been taken sure. since the passage of Roe v. Wade? Sure. Live action has done some work researching, and we have come up with the number 2363, that every day there are 2,363 preborn children that die from abortion. And since 1973, we are looking at over 60 million deaths from abortion that we know of that are recorded. And of course, there's more. That's just in America. So there's more globally. And that is because we have abortion on demand, abortion for any reason at any time. And that is, that's what's left us with this enormously high amount of abortions. Can you weave us a picture of, you know, what, you know, you hear 60 million and it's like, Oh, that's a big number. Like, right. But what, like, what's that mean? What does 60 million mean? You know, it's hard for people to connect with a number like 60 million because we don't know 60 million people. I mean, some of us don't even know 600 people. Some of us don't even have 600 followers or 6,000 followers on our you know, social media accounts. And so it's hard to wrap our mind around that. Even saying 2,363 unborn babies, preborn babies die every day is still something that's hard to wrap our mind around. And so for me, that's why I like to tell my personal story about my mom walking out of an abortion clinic, because if people can't wrap their mind around 60 million or over 2,000 a day, maybe they could look at me and listen to my voice and look in my eyes and hear my story and think, Christina is one of the ones that was scheduled to die, but she made it out. But it would be as if she times this many every single day, my life completely lost. No family, no husband, no children, no future. And that's happening every single day over 2,000 times. And as people, we often do connect with the one, you know, save the one. We connect with the story of the one. And so people who have been scheduled to be aborted are people who even survived an abortion, like Claire Caldwell, like Melissa Odin, like Jenna Jensen. They help people to understand that 
every person has value and they help them to put a picture and a face to a ridiculously high number. One of the tactics of the pro-abortion lobby and their activists is to push chemical abortion. They realize that states across the country are restricting abortion and banning abortion, and therefore they are fighting hard to push chemical abortion. The FDA is allowing it to go through the mail, but activists are also campaigning to make it seem as if chemical abortion is something that doesn't have any consequence to it. When I was speaking at a rally at the Supreme Court, there were activists dressed in black who were taking the abortion pill. Was it actually the abortion pill? I don't know, but they said that it was. And they were taking it in front of hundreds of people just to show them that this is the abortion pill and I can just take it right here and it's not a big deal. Shortly after that, a pro-life advocate, Rebecca Kiesling, was on an interview on the news with a pro-abortion advocate and the same exact thing happened. This pro-abortion advocate paused and said, I'll show you how simple it is to take the abortion pill and she took the abortion pill on air. So they are really trying to normalize the abortion pill. I've seen many advertisements where they're saying, oh, it's safer than Tylenol. Just like they lie and say that abortion is 10 times safer than natural birth. They want people to think that this is something that's safe, that has no consequences to it physically or even emotionally, and they are campaigning to normalize it. And, you know, how do you respond to those arguments that, you know, abortion is safer than, you know, childbirth? It's a lie to say that abortion is safer than childbirth. But one thing that's important for people to recognize is that not every state keeps accurate records of abortions that are botched. I know stories of women right here in the state of Connecticut who've had botched abortions, including the doctors leaving fetal remains inside of them, including them having perforated uteruses and even being left infertile. And those numbers are not recorded. Those numbers are not taken in. Even when it comes to the chemical abortion pill, the FDA is recording deaths, but they're not recording women who've been left infertile or, or hemorrhaged or had some kind of serious consequence. And so you compare that to hospitals who are accurately recording if there's deaths for you know maternal health and maternal mortality. They're recording that compared to the abortion industry and abortionists who are not really giving accurate records are states who are not requiring those things to be recorded. And then they're saying abortion is 10 times safer than natural birth, but really do you even have the accurate statistics of how many women have had botched abortions or how many women have been hurt by abortions? And the answer is no. So you can't even claim that that's true because you don't have the accurate numbers. The fact that they don't have the accurate numbers, do they have an incentive to not actually have the numbers? They don't want the numbers of women who've had botched abortions. They don't want to hear the stories of women who have suffered from the chemical abortion pill. They don't. In all of my years of working, even doing political things near the Capitol, working with legislators, I've never seen pro-choice activists say, we need to get some data on how many women have had botched abortions in Connecticut or in this particular state so we can better understand what's really happening with abortions in our state. I've never heard that. I've never seen a bill proposed to, to have that sort of information. In fact, I just testified against some legislation that is very harmful coming to the state of Connecticut. They're trying to allow midwives 
and nurses to perform abortions. And even though they know that they don't have the training, they still want them to be able to do it just because they're saying, oh, there's a delay, there's a three-week delay, so therefore we need to train up midwives and train up APRNs to, to do abortions. And so are they truly concerned about women's health and safety? I would say no, they're not. They're concerned about access to abortion, abortion on demand. And I've even said to legislators, why don't you do a survey? Why don't you talk to women in our state and find out what their abortion experiences are? Where do their incentives lie and why, why would they, you know, keep records and data on the damage of abortion? Abortion is the money-making business. And if you look at people who have left the industry, if you look at Carol Everett, who wrote a book called Blood Money, if you look at Dr. Levitano, who has done videos, he said in a documentary called A Matter of Life that he was the kind of person that if someone said, here's a couple hundred dollars for you to kill my baby, he would take it and he would do it. And tragically, abortion is a money-making business. There's a lot of money involved in this business. And why would abortionists, why would their advocates want to truly look at the ways in which women have been hurt by abortion? They don't want to because it's going to be contrary to their narrative. They won't be able to say that abortion is safe if they truly understand how many women have been hurt, both physically and emotionally, from it. Recently in D.C., there were pro-life activists who were outside of an abortion facility, and there was a truck that was there from an organization that was picking up medical waste. And the activists assumed that that medical waste was fetal remains, and they asked the truck driver, could they have the box? And he wondered, what are you going to do with it? And they said, we believe that it's babies in there and we would give them a proper burial. So he ended up giving them this box. Well, there were over 100 babies in that box. The majority of them, 110, were first trimester, but there were five that were later trimesters that looked like they could have been late-term abortions. And so they ended up bringing them home to one of the activists' homes, and they buried the 110. But then the five, they contacted the D.C. police, and they let them know what was going on because they wanted an autopsy to be done. But tragically, because of some other legal issues related to one of the activists, the D.C. police came and actually it was the homicide unit that raided the person's house and they got the five fetuses. And that person who was holding them is facing various charges. But what's interesting is that, well, a lot of things are interesting about the story, but there's been such outrage against the activist who was holding the fetuses in her home. And so many people are accusing her of being corrupt and evil and sick, but she didn't murdered those children. She didn't cause those late-term abortions. And it's mind-boggling how people can be so angry at her because she was trying to give them a proper burial and investigate to see if they were killed in an illegal way, but yet she's in the wrong for doing that, whereas the abortion doctor, people might consider him to be a hero and there's no consequences coming towards him. And the D.C. police and even the mayor is unwilling to perform an autopsy, even though there are some signs that doctors have looked at the pictures of these babies and said, this looks like an illegal partial birth abortion. 
the, the mayor and the police are refusing to do an autopsy, which goes to show you how often corruption is overlooked in the abortion industry. The abortion lobby would have us believe it's, you know, risk-free, pain-free, no problem, you know, just easy, come on in, get an abortion, and everything will be good. Is that the reality? People like to say that abortion is safe, but they don't recognize the fact that in every single abortion, every successful abortion, one person dies. So right away, we're looking at something that how can you label this safe when the end result is that there are two people before the procedure and that there's one after? Some people like to say that still it's relatively safe, but we don't know all of the stories because there are many women who do not report the stories, or if they do report them, the states don't collect the data, and we haven't, no, we don't hear about it. We don't know all of the truth of how many women are hurt. In addition to physical complications from abortion, like a perforated uterus, like hemorrhaging, like infection, like infertility, in addition, there are the emotional consequences. I've talked to women who have suffered greatly because of an abortion, even decades later after they've had the abortion, they will say, when I hear the vacuum, it reminds me of the sound of the suction machine when I had the abortion. Women who their relationships have broken up, they've had divorces, they've lost people they loved because of the pain that they went through when they chose abortion. Women who have even been driven to the point of suicide or wrestled with suicidal thoughts because they have had an abortion. And so there is a lot of trauma that women have suffered related to abortion and men. It's important to not forget that men as well weep Men as well have pain, they have sorrow, and at times feel helpless because they know that they don't have any say when it comes to fighting for the life of their child because it is seen as a woman's rights issue and only the woman has the legal right to decide what she wants to do with that child. So there's a lot of hidden pain that we as a society have not recognized. A lot of people are talking about, you know, oh, the Dobbs case could end abortion access as we know it. but. A lot of what I'm hearing you say is, you know, in some way the fight will just change. It won't it won't go away. Can you give audiences a sense of like, is the topic of abortion and its importance, you know, as a discussion and as a as a history to know and as an issue to be aware of, does the significance go away when the Supreme Court makes a decision, you know, on Dobbs or really any right. case? It's important for people to know that although Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton legalized abortion across every state in America in 1973, prior to that, states had individual laws on abortion. And if Roe versus Wade is overturned, Doe versus Bolton is overturned, it's going to go back to the states. And so what's happening right now is pro-life states are passing legislation in preparation for Roe versus Wade to be overturned, and pro-abortion states are passing legislation in preparation for Roe versus Wade to be overturned. So my home state of Connecticut, they have codified abortion into our state law, and they're right now looking to pass a bill that would make it a part of our state constitution. Hopefully it doesn't pass, but we'll have to wait and see what happens. That means when Roe is overturned on a national level, abortion would still be legal in Connecticut. Abortion would still be legal in California. Abortion would still be legal in New York all the way up until birth. They are making essentially abortion sanctuary states. 
And so we're going to see something that is somewhat similar to pre-Civil War America, where you had pro and anti-slavery states. You're going to see pro-choice and pro-life states. And that's going to change the way that we look at the abortion debate. But still, abortion is going to be an issue that we have to continue fighting. Regardless of what happens with, you know, future Supreme Court cases, future state laws, will the pro-choice movement ever give up their fight? I look at Dr. Bernard Nathanson. I look at Dr. Levitano and other abortion doctors who have had a change of heart. And I believe we will see more of that as we continually advance with technology and understanding of when the preborn person feels pain. As we continually illuminate the beauty of the preborn child, I believe we'll see more hearts changed. But there will be some people who are always committed to abortion rights. I think particularly among women who've had abortions, you see a fierce commitment to abortion rights. And that is because they have to convince themselves that their decision was the right one. And it would be very painful for them to acknowledge that not only is abortion wrong on a national level, but it was wrong for them. That takes a lot. It's painful. And that's why women who've had abortions are often in need of healing and therapy. And there's programs like Forgiven and Set Free and Rachel's Vineyard that offer that to women. But that driving force of pain because you've had an abortion, so therefore I have to fight for it, you see that a lot with the abortion activist groups, who many of them on the front lines are women who've had abortions. And so I have a great empathy for them. They don't have to live in that pain and they don't have to use it to justify fighting for abortion, but it would take a real awakening for them to come out of that. What, what do you say to a woman who's had an abortion and, you know, is, um, whether that woman is, you know, struggling with it and in pain from it, or whether she seems to be, you know, celebrating that abortion and, and advocating for abortion. What do you say to someone who has had that? To a woman who is celebrating her abortion, I would ask you to think about the reasons why you had an abortion. Was it really you exercising your right to choose? Did you feel afraid? Did you feel like you had any other choice? Were you supported? Did you have the love that you need? How did you feel when you first found out that you were pregnant? And to consider if anything was different, could there have been a different outcome? If you had the support, if you had resources, if you had the love, would you or could you have chosen to parent or adopt? Perhaps you felt like it was you or the child and you had to fight for yourself, and you chose yourself, and perhaps you don't regret that. But I want you to recognize and acknowledge that there was another human being, and that life is forever lost. And what was your responsibility to that human being? Perhaps you have other children, and you look at them, and you value them, and you love them. Know that the child who was lost is just as valuable and just as loved. And I'm sorry that you weren't able to see that at the time and fight for that child, but you can still have a change of heart. And even if you've had an abortion, you can still acknowledge it and you can reject it and you can fight for other lives to be saved. And what do you say to the woman who had an abortion and, you know, is really struggling with 
with that and knows it was wrong and feels constant guilt and grief over that abortion. One in four women have had an abortion in America. That's what the statistics say. And if you've had an abortion, you are not alone. There are millions of women who have also suffered that same pain. It is a tragedy and is sorrowful. And I want you to know that you can grieve. Allow yourself to feel those emotions. Perhaps they feel overwhelming to you and you need someone else to walk with you through the journey of healing. Know that there are therapists, there are professionals that you can talk to and you can confide in them and let them know. Pregnancy resource centers all across the country, many of them offer what's called post-abortion healing groups or support groups. Groups like Rachel's Vineyard for Catholics, Forgiven and Set Free, for Catholics and Protestants, and other people as well. You can join one of those groups. But even if you feel like that's too big of a step to take and you're not ready for that, go online, buy a book, read a book about abortion healing, call a number. There's an organization called Support After Abortion. Look Support After Abortion up. Call them on the phone and talk to them. Start somewhere small and then take a step day by day. Healing is worth it. You do not have to live in shame. You do not have to live in fear. And you don't have to live the rest of your life in regret. There is hope and healing available to you. What do you say to a pro-choice advocate who says, look, I just think that women should you know, be able to decide what to do with their own bodies? If you're someone that believes in bodily autonomy and thinks that a woman should just have a right to do what she wants with her own body, I urge you to reconsider to look at images of the preborn child growing in a mother's womb, to look at fetal development, and to acknowledge the fact that this is not just part of a woman's body, that a preborn child has a separate, distinct, unique body. I came from my mother and she carried me for nine months, but I am not her. I am a separate, unique person. And a woman has a wonderful gift to be able to carry a child for a very small amount of time. But then hopefully that person will go on and live maybe 90 years. So maybe a woman will carry a child for nine months and that person may go on to live 90 years separate from the person who carried them outside of their womb. And so what is our responsibility to that life? What is our responsibility to that unique separate person with a separate heartbeat and DNA and all of these unique things about them? What do we owe them? We owe them the opportunity to live. We owe them the right to life. Would, would people be shocked if they learned what really happens in an abortion? People would be disgusted if they learned what really happens in an abortion. People would be floored, I think, if they understood that even after an abortion, a surgical abortion, the doctor or the nurse is taking those pieces and they are putting them on the table and they are looking to make sure they have the foot and the leg and the arm because if they don't and that's left inside of the woman, then she can have an infection and she could go to the hospital. And so even that part of it, it's just so morbid and, and grisly and, and barbaric, but people don't see that. 
when Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry does advertising, it's smiling faces, it's women's choice, it's billboards that people put up about abortionist self-care, and we're gonna have new clinics where people can come in and have robes and, and drink tea and everything else. And it's just hiding the reality of how barbaric this is. When stories come out about babies that were born, that were born alive after abortion, or babies that were found, people are shocked. But that is just the tip of the iceberg. It's just the tip of the iceberg. I don't know when America will ever fully know what's going on because so much is hidden and so much is covered up. Is Planned Parenthood trying to normalize abortion through history? Planned Parenthood is trying to normalize abortion, looking through history and lying to people and telling them that so many people and organizations and institutions were always in support of abortion, but that's really not the case. Even if you were to study feminist history, early feminist history in the late 1800s into the 1900s, you would see that women like Alice Paul, women like Susan B. Anthony, they opposed abortion. They spoke out against abortion. If you look at the civil rights movement, you see Black women like Mildred Jefferson. You see women like Fannie Lou Hamer, who were strong advocates. Fannie Lou Hamer is a well-respected Democrat leader and a civil rights leader. And she was forcibly sterilized. And she spoke out against that, calling legal abortion legal murder. Those are just a few examples. But all throughout history, you see that there are women who were on the front lines who were leaders and men as well, who vocally and strongly opposed abortion. And they represent tens of thousands, millions perhaps, who maybe you don't know their name, but they too oppose abortion. What happened in early 1960 that further pushed the, the, kind of, the agenda of you know, bodily autonomy in what would become one of the kind of core arguments of the abortion movement? In the early 1960s, the FDA approved the birth control pill. It's important to understand that this was really championed by Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of the American Birth Control League, which later became Planned Parenthood. In addition, her wealthy friend, Catherine McCormick, used her fortune to provide finances to research the birth control pill. Margaret Sanger used this because she wanted to control the population of people that she thought were unfit and shouldn't really reproduce. But in in addition to that, it really played a major part in the sexual revolution because they were calling for women to be free, to be liberated. They considered that motherhood could be a burden to women, and the pill provided that freedom for them, or what they thought was freedom. Was it around this time that uh, the pro-abortion lobby started you know, pushing the lie that without legal abortion, thousands of women would die in illegal abortions? After the FDA approved the abortion pill in 1960s, the abortion activists understood that this was their moment and this was their time and that birth control was not enough. They pushed the lie that without legal abortion, thousands of women would die in back alley abortions. And so they fought hard for abortion on demand and abortion without apology. The pro-choice crowd argues that abortion protects women's rights and gives them more power. Is that true or does abortion actually take away female empowerment. The fact that women feel like they have to have an abortion in order to 
save their career, that they have to have an abortion in order to finish school, that they have to have an abortion in order to stay in a relationship. That shows that we are vulnerable in society. And there are many ways in which we are lacking the power that we need. And abortion is a false promise. It's a lie telling us that all you need to do is sacrifice your fertility. All you need to do is sacrifice your reproductive health. All you need to do is offer up your child as a sacrifice. And then you can have whatever you want. You can be equal to men. You can get that job. You can get that career. We see, we've seen actresses say that without abortion, I wouldn't have been able to do this movie. Without abortion, I wouldn't be able to have my career in Hollywood. Multiple actresses have said this. And it's a lie. That's not what female empowerment looks like. That is what oppression looks like. You have to kill a part of you, even if you just believe, oh, it's just a woman's body. Even if you believe that, that's a part of you, isn't it? And you're saying you have to let a part of you die in order for you to have true freedom and liberation. That's very sad. That's not empowerment. What about the argument that abortion prevents, you know, single mothers? Uh, and women in general from sliding, you know, further into poverty. I find it troubling and sad that when we discuss poverty, when we discuss single mothers in America, when we discuss communities of color, abortion advocates say that abortion is an answer to alleviate their issues or alleviate poverty. It's sad because that is the same thing that white wealthy elitist people said in the eugenics movement that you needed abortion in order to help the unfit and that they would not reproduce after their own kind. When we're discussing poverty and how to alleviate that, why don't we talk about the things that are truly helpful? Like studies show that if a person is able to finish high school, then that is a great indication that they will not fall into poverty. Why are we not promoting things like education? Why are we not promoting family? Why are we not looking at the reasons that women are having abortions and saying, are they having an abortion because they feel like they can't afford not to, but what if we were to offer them resources and support as a society? What if we were to make these improvements? If we only look at abortion, as this main answer and make that a priority when it comes to poverty, then society will never change. And women will continually be taken advantage of by businesses and companies because they will know that it's cheaper for them to provide through insurance a few hundred dollars for women to get paid to have an abortion than it is to provide a working environment where she can be a mother and, and have a career as well. I believe that abortion makes it worse for low-income women. I believe that it makes it worse for women of color, especially when you see how many women are having multiple abortions. And you see states like Connecticut where 70% of the women who have abortions are doing it through Medicaid. And I've talked to women who have said I had three or I had four abortions because all I had to do was you know, show my Medicaid card and I knew the state paid for that. And doing that didn't automatically alleviate them from any of their there's circumstances. And so let's just think through this. If a woman goes and she has an abortion and then she goes back home to the boyfriend that she's with, if something doesn't change in her lifestyle and what she's doing and the way that she's having a relationship, it doesn't 
necessarily mean that that abortion is going to be something that launches her into a career or launches her into having more discipline when it comes to searching for a job or searching for, you know, better relationships, whatever the case may be. She might just get pregnant a year from now and then go have another abortion. And she might just be stuck in a cycle. And so really, abortion doesn't provide any kind of guarantee that a woman is going to have a better life because of it or be in a better position because of it. Because there's a lot of stories of women who have gotten pregnant and then they say, okay, this is gonna push me to graduate. I'm gonna graduate and I'm gonna walk across the aisle with my son. I know women who have been struggling and making actually poor decisions and they get pregnant and that's a wake up call for them. And they say, okay, now it's not just about me, now it's about my child as well. And so I can't be in the club every single day doing whatever, doing drugs or doing, uh, or having promiscuous se sexual behavior because the, their child causes them to have a conviction about their lifestyle and to want to be a better person. I I know moms who have said, I used to be out there, I used to be wild, but you know, my baby helped me. And not that we are look, telling mom to look to their children to, to cause them to be more responsible, but there is something to be said about that natural process where a woman who has an abortion can easily look at that as a Band-Aid. And then a year from now or two years from now, she gets pregnant, she has another abortion or she has another abortion because that's what she used to get out of that circumstance. Whereas a woman who chooses to have a child, that could cause her to, to grow and to mature and to have responsibility. So it's not so black and white as people think. Does abortion let men off the hook? Abortion absolutely lets men out of the responsibility of being fathers and being caretakers. Think about the way society has changed. Prior to abortion, if a woman got pregnant, where was the pressure in society? The pressure was on the shoulders of the man. You need to marry her. You need to make things right. Yes, of course, women were sent away to different places, but a lot of the societal pressure was on the man to marry the woman and to create a family. Now, should every woman who gets pregnant by a man marry that person? I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that's the healthiest or best situation, but I'm just saying that that's where the societal pressure was. Now, because of 50 years of abortion, now where is the pressure? If a woman gets pregnant, where is that pressure? Is it on the man's shoulder to marry her? Is it on the man's shoulders to do right by her? Absolutely not. In fact, now the man is adding to the pressure on the woman because now the man is saying along with society, this is your body, this is your choice. You gotta take care of this. What are you gonna do? Are you gonna get an abortion? It's shocking how many cases of abuse and violence happens when a woman says no to a man who wants her to get an abortion. A lot of people don't know that one of the number one ways that pregnant women die, in fact, the number one way right now that pregnant women die is homicide. Homicide. Women are dying through homicide. They are being killed by men. They are being killed by partners. And sometimes that's because they are saying no to having an abortion. Well, why would that happen? Well, 50 years of men being told that their children are objects that can be disregarded. Their children are objects that can be discarded. They're objects that can be destroyed. If they're inconvenient, well, 
then their mindset also thinks maybe perhaps the women are as well. And you see cases, there is a couple well-known cases that made the news, one involving a football player and a uh, cheerleader and she got pregnant and he ended up killing her and the child. And he said, well, she wouldn't have the abortion. She refused to have the abortion. So I had to take care of it. And him having to take care of it was killing her and the child. And this happens, this happens. And we don't like to talk about it in society, but where is that connection? Well, men have been told that it's not their responsibility. It's a woman's body. It's a woman's choice. And so therefore you see more and more men who are pressuring and coercing women into having abortions so that they don't have to deal with it. And it's very sad. You know, if a man has a child, he knows that he might have to pay child support. And perhaps that's part of the motivation and not wanting to do that. And so there goes the pressure to have an abortion. Is, is it a lie then that abortion is the pro-woman stance? Abortion is not pro-woman. Abortion hurts women. Abortion hurts family. Abortion hurts preborn children who many of them are little women. They are females. They will grow up to be women. And you can't say that you are pro-woman if you are advocating for the death of females, if you're advocating for the death of preborn baby girls. How is that pro-woman? Abortion would have killed me, taken my life. I would have been dismembered. I would have been thrown away into a trash can. I wouldn't have been able to be the woman that I am and to live out my life. It's absolutely hypocritical of pro-abortion advocates to say that we are the ones that are pro-woman. No, we in the pro-life movement are pro-women from the womb to the tomb. We are pro-women from the moment of conception all the way to natural death. We are fighting for them in the womb and outside of the womb. We want them to live, to thrive, to prosper, and to be whole. Hush my troubled mind and rest. The abortion industry uses women for their own profit. These lies are pervasive. They're not difficult to refute, but it can be difficult to penetrate that culture of lies, to get the truth out there. We have to do it. We have to do it because it's right. We have to do it for the victims of abortion. We have to do it for the women who are taken in by this industry, who are used for dollars, even to their own detriment. If you enjoyed this conversation with Christina Bennett, you'll want to check out our Daily Wire original documentary, Choosing Death, The Legacy of Roe. In it, we take a wrecking ball to the four fallacies keeping the abortion industry alive. To watch it right now, go to dailywireplus.com. Today, if you join, you will see not only this full movie, Choosing Death, The Legacy of Roe, but you will have access to The Daily Wire's entire catalog of content, which we can only produce and distribute because of you, with your support. I'm Michael Knowles. This is the Choosing Life Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Choosing Life Podcast is a Daily Wire production, produced in association with Outer Limits. Our technical and support team includes Ian Reed, Jesse Eastman, Ryan Moore, Mariah Cormier, and Jim Wirt. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. Thanks for listening.